0: Fundraising, well, I reiterate this what we shared. Good job to everyone who participated in all the fundraising. And it looks like everything's in place for the two mission teams. All they need to do is just get on that plane and go and start serving. So what an exciting prospect of ministry that God has in store for them. And our prayers go with you, our hearts go with you. And we look forward to just great report uh, when you return. Well, let's start this morning by sharing with you my eventful uh, day yesterday. Uh, one of the highlights was shopping for my wife's present for our six-year anniversary. Uh, it's been six years since we were wed. 1997, time has just flown by. I can't believe it's already been six years. Now, when you're married, for you guys who are not married or newly married, when you're married six years, Bob can understand, some of you guys married longer can understand this. When you have been married six years, you've given all the gifts that you can give. You've done the flowers, you've done the jewelry, you've done, what else is there? <laughs> the books and theological books. You've done it all, right? So this year, I go, what am I going to give my wife for our 6th anniversary? I love her so much, I appreciate in the Lord. And you know, I went beyond the call of duty as a husband. I went shopping for clothes. Now, that's beyond the call of duty because I have a, a very strange reaction to shopping malls. I just get a migraine headache. Like five minutes into shopping, it's like a a, a marathon race. Ironman triathlon for me to go shopping. My wife can attest to that. Also, I just get up a lot of you know, courage and just commitment and dedication, and I go to Kohl's three in the afternoon. And I never go to the women's section, right? I mean, it was so odd walking through that area. So I'm walking around and just trying to pick out something to buy for my wife. And I am just taken aback. I am almost like embarrassed by the clothing that are lining the racks of that department store. Very seductive, very alluring, very suggestive clothing. Clothing that were maybe uh, you know made for even young 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 women, like in teenage years, or even like elementary students were so seductive, I was embarrassed to even look there, pick them up. You know, I read someplace weeks ago, that clothing reveals a hidden culture of the heart. It is a hidden value revealed. And I see so much truth to that. Just by seeing what young women today wear, what they choose to clothe themselves with, I don't need to know what they believe. I don't need to hear what they believe. I already know it by their clothing. It reveals to me that what they believe, their their heart culture, their core values, are diametrically opposed to the things that we're studying in Titus 2. In our culture, young women today are being taught to love whatever they want, whoever they want, to not worry about being sensible. Not worry about being self-controlled. Do whatever pleases you. As long as it makes you happy, you, know, you go, right? Don't, don't work at home. Work wherever you want, how much as you want. Don't worry about being kind. Take care of yourself, not someone else. And by all means, no matter what you do in life, never ever submit to another man. Submit to your husband, even your father. Now, what happened in our culture? How did we come to this point? I mean, I was a history major in college, and you know read a few books right, through my college years, right, in between my whatever, right? I read a few books. And it seems to me 50, 60 years ago, that wasn't the culture of this country. Right? What happened? What, what caused this great shift? In our society. Now it really is a convergence of events. I I don't believe one movement or a single reason lies behind the pendulum swing that has occurred in this area in the past 60 years. It is indeed a variety of synergistic reasons for our culture today. But I do believe, and you would agree with me, that one of the greatest influences behind this movement is the feminist movement. The modern feminist movement, this has laid the basis, set the platform, given ideas, um, foundations, given women the, the ideas to, to practice and behave in this way. And I believe it is by far, practically speaking, to our families and to, our, to the to Christian churches, it is by far one of the most devastating and destructive movements in our day, it is not only changing the church as we know it, it is destroying families. It is devastating husband and wife relationships. It is removing the, the mother's critical role. Remember the last year, the irreplaceable role that moms have in the family? It is taking that away. And there's a great vacuum in the family, a great vacuum in the church. And I believe a lot of it owes to this wrong mindset. I I think it is evident that that modern radical feminism has brainwashed our culture. It has brainwashed our culture to the degree that even the church has fallen victim to this. I think all of us, even including men, we are in some way influenced by feminism. As for a minute, I think it makes us passive. It causes us to uh, extend our adolescence to set aside our responsibility. The gravity as men that we have to be protectors, providers, and leaders for our family, our church and community. Because of feminism, that's been taken away so we extend our adolescence. I think it's influenced men in that way. And then for women, it has a direct influence to all women, even Christian women. Now, I spent this week reading like all this literature about feminist movement, feminist authors, and it wasn't fun. The Things that I do to study the Word of God. And the books that I have to read, the articles. I mean, and so like, I've got all these pages about the doctrines of feminism, but I'm going to lose you guys, right? <laughs> I'm going to lose myself by going through all of that. So I just narrowed it down to one basic tenet of feminism. If we were to boil it down... What is the core doctrine, core pillar of feminism? It is the idea that physical differences apart, men and women are the same. There's no difference. No inherent essential difference. Infant boys and girls are born with virtually the same capacities and if raised in a unisex environment, without the, the biases, ingrained sexual biases, by the parents or teachers, they would end up the same. There is no difference. David Ayers, in Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, says, quote, All the major positions of feminism, of modern feminism, can be traced back to the assumption that there is no significant difference between the sexes. And based upon that, they see marriage as an oppressive institution created by men to enslave women. They see the Bible and Christianity and the church as a cruel uh, instrument, cruel influence of society, where Paul's chauvinistic, male-centered Jewish mindset was, has come out of the New Testament and has caused irreparable damage to women near and far. They, therefore, on a practical level, was a direct attack on the family and the church, on the role of men and women, husbands and wives, fathers and and mothers. They're all redefined and attacked. Listen to some of the leading feminist writers and what they've said about marriage. Uh, Feminist leader Sheila Cronin said this, quote, Since marriage constitutes slavery for women, it is clear that the women's movement must concentrate on attacking this institution. Freedom for women cannot be won without the abolition of marriage, end quote. The Declaration of Modern Feminism goes back to November 1971, when they laid out their agenda, and this is what it says, quote, The end of the institution of marriage is necessary for the liberation of women. Therefore, it is important for us to encourage women to leave their husbands and not live individually with men. All of history must be rewritten in terms of oppression of women. We must go back to the ancient female religions like witchcraft, End quote. Vivian Gornick, a feminist author from the University of Illinois, says, quote, Being a housewife is an illegitimate profession. The heart of radical feminism is to change that, end quote. Consider what they have said about motherhood. One feminist author wrote that women who stay home to raise children and who are financially dependent on their husbands are deceived and oppressed, end quote. National Organization for Women, the founder, Betty Fryden, referred to stay-at-home mothers and male breadwinners as obsolete Her friend, feminist leader, Simon Simone de Bouvier, I don't know if they got that right, (laughs) asserted, no woman should stay at home and raise her children. Women should not even have that choice. End quote. These are the common viewpoints of feminism. And it has become popularized into the mainstream, and it has permeated the thinking of the collective consciousness. And therefore... It has influenced all of us. It is a hot-button issue. All right. I mean, I stirred the pot last week. I might stir it up again today. All right. You know, the women of Cornerstone, I hope you know that the elders, the leaders of Cornerstone, we love you. We consider you gifts from God. We consider you precious. We, we thank God for you. Now, I, I, I believe... All the cornerstone women are like-minded in this area. I think, I, I think I'm accurate to say that. And I know that when I'm preaching to you guys, I'm preaching to the choir, right? Preaching to the converted. James, I'm already convinced. I believe all these things. Well, just like wrong doctrine, right doctrine is easy. The challenge is right life. The converse is true. See if this makes sense. I don't think any cornerstone woman will stand up and affirm feminism. But that's easy for us to identify wrong doctrine and say, I don't believe that. But the challenge, is it not, is to disavow the life that comes with wrong doctrine? Does that make sense? Right? I mean, there's the rub. I wonder how many of us would recoil at the attitudes, the decisions, the mindset of the feminist movement. Right. Doctrinally, no problem, we're united. But we have to acknowledge right, that right doc, wrong, rejecting wrong doctrine is easy, but rejecting wrong life, that is the challenge, that is difficult. It is easy for Christian women to say feminism is wrong, but it is difficult, it is a challenge for Christian women to not live as a feminist. Not to give in to pragmatism. It's very difficult. That difficulty is is multiplied because of the curse of the fall. Back to Genesis 3.16. Let me just read to you. Because sin entered the world, God said to the woman, two two curses because of the fall. I will surely greatly increase your pain in childbirth. Secondly, your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. There are two parts of the curse for for the woman. First part is pain in childbirth. Now, there is some... um, (laughs) medical remedy, a relief for that, right? Called the epidural. So, to some degree, medical science has, to a small degree, I could say, alleviated that, but not for the second. Because of the fall, all women have an ingrained desire to rule men. All wives, because of the curse of the fall, have this desire to control, to dominate, to exercise authority, to teach over men, and even dress in a certain way, flirt in a certain way, respond to a certain way, to influence men sexually, their husbands and men in general. So it is intensified. So the challenge is again. It is not just to know right doctrine. It's not just to identify feminist doctrine that is wrong. But it is to reject the feminist mindset and lifestyle. And to adopt the mindset and lifestyle that fits right doctrine. That is our challenge. So here we have in Titus 2, God's answer to feminism. The challenge is without and within. From outside the church, we have these feminist leaders who have a low view of the Bible, who are suspicious towards men, who are antagonistic towards um, the church. Within women, part of the curse is there's a sinful bent towards, sinful inclination towards ruling over men. What's the Bible's response? It's Titus 2. It's right here. How can we reach out to so many young women who are deceived by the lies of feminism? It's not by debates. It's not by me preaching. I'm not going to listen to a a guy preaching from the Bible behind a heavy pulpit. That's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen by them reading journal articles and listening to tapes. Not even giving them arguments and evidence. That's not going to work. It is when they see a woman who lives for God, who has a pure heart, a heart that loves the Lord, a heart that loves her husband, loves her children, and is full of joy at glorifying God, that's going to make an impact on this world. Women who are permeated and deceived by their lies, women, your life will make an impact in the society. What about that desire within you? To rule over men. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 2.15. I believe this is what Paul is talking about. Way women can overcome that. 1 Timothy 2.15. Paul says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, what is, what is she being saved from? Is it eternal salvation? No. That goes against everything Paul teaches in all his epistles. He's teaching that the woman will be saved from that curse. Why do we believe that? Because the context in verses 13 and 14 is Adam and Eve. And how Eve was deceived first. And because she was deceived, and because she led Adam into sin, the curse was her desire to rule over Adam. And Paul is saying, you'll be saved from that if you focus on your responsibility, your role before God. And what is that? It's raising children, living a life of faith, life of love, holiness, and self-control. So here we have in Titus chapter 2, seven marks of a Titus 2 younger woman that will not only be used by God to reach the lost, But also, used by God to shepherd your own soul, shepherd your own hearts towards true godliness. Well, the the seven are found in verses 4, 5, and 6. 4 and 5, excuse me. The seven are love for one's husband, love for one's children, sensible, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, That past few weeks we covered verse 4, the first two marks of a Titus 2 younger woman. The first mark of a godly woman is that she loves her husband. Verse 4. And we spent the whole sermon on looking at First Corinthians 13. What love is. Love is not feeling. Love is not emotion. Love is not romance. Love is a verb. Love is behavior. And these are the marks, the traits, the characteristics of biblical love. And then last week we looked at love for one's children. Verse 4. And we looked at five marks of biblical love towards children. You want to love your child? These are the five things that are essential to loving your child. First is, love God first. You have to model, exemplify true Christianity. Second, you must love your husbands above loving your children. The illustration. If your child was drowning and your husband's drowning, who do you save? You can only save one. Save your husband. Right? Because that's God's will. Please. Save your husband. Thirdly, teach the children the Word of God. The greatest, most in, impactful teacher in the family is really, essentially, the wife. Really is. I mean, by hands down, Serena and I, she has far more influence in Elizabeth's life than me. Just by the sheer number of hours she spends with her. The opportunity she has to teach her the Word of God. That is why, as husbands, what is our role? Is to train our wives. To teach our wives the Word of God. To build them up in theology. To ingrain them, instruct them, give them every opportunity to grow as believers because they are going to shape the next generation. As a pastor, same thing. What is my job? To train the leaders here. As I train the leaders, the leaders will teach the church. So, Bobby and I, we train like Ben, and Gary, and Huey, and Mike Astur and Dale, and all other men here, Rex, and so on, and they train you, so, as, so the degree we invest in them, the church benefits. Well, same thing in the family. The degree the husband invests in the wife to that degree, children benefit from the Word of God. The fourth mark is discipline the children according to the Word of God. We went through many verses in Proverbs. Loving your child means to discipline them. Spare the rod, you will hate your child. Though you beat him, he will not die. You will deliver his soul from Sheol, Proverbs 23. And the final one is to be a full-time mother at home. I believe the Bible teaches us that if you do these things, you are loving your child. If not, then you need to, with your husband, <clears throat> make some difficult choices. Make some difficult decisions. Because as a mother, that is your privilege. That is your God-given role. To love your husband and love your children. Well, for the rest of this time, let's go through the final five marks of the Titus 2 Women. In, in Titus 2 Women, verse 5. The next characteristic highlighted by Paul is sensible. Sensible. New American Standard Version has it sensible. New King James Version has discreet. The Greek word is sophron, a word that might be familiar to you. A very important word in the New Testament that points to true spiritual maturity. It is used by Paul to highlight mature men and women. It is a character trait, according to Paul, that must be present in church leaders. 1 Timothy 3, two: The overseer, the elder, the pastor must be above reproach, one woman man, temperate and sofrant. He must be sensible, he must be discreet, he must be prudent. Titus 1.7, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be hospitable, a lover of good. Sophron again. Titus 2.2, 2, same word is found again. This word, this is to characterize older men. Older men are also to be sensible, Sophron Verse 6, younger women as well. Various translations are self-controlled, sober-minded, prudent, moderate. Colin Brown says, it is the opposite of ignorance and frivolity. I'm trying to use words to highlight our understanding of what it means to be sophron. It is such a word rich with meaning. It means prudent. Webster says, what is prudence? It is wisdom in handling practical matters. Young women, you need to be wise in handling practical things. Exercising good judgment. Exercising common sense. Careful in regard to one's own interests. You know how you are given to extremes, to excesses. So you are careful to who or to what you give your heart to careful about one's conduct, circumspect. Webster's definition of sensible is acting with or exhibiting good sense. His definition of self-control, controlling one's emotions, desires, or actions by one's own will, not being influenced by external things. Webster's definition of sober, devoid of frivolity, Excess, exaggeration, or speculative imagination. Straightforward. Another definition he gives is sober. Marked by seriousness, gravity, solemnity of conduct or character. Marked by self-restraint. Paul, by saying this, is telling us that human beings in general, this is not natural for us. To be self-controlled, to be sober, to be wise, to be restrained. It is part of our sinful nature to be excessive, to be impulsive, to be foolish, to not be self-controlled, to be out of control. That's why he says elders must be men who are so Older men and younger women. Did he leave older women out? No, he didn't because he tells the older women what? To teach the younger women and to train the younger women to be Sophron, therefore, they must have this characteristic in themselves as well. It is a call to older women to minister to younger women and to teach them, to train them to have sound judgment, common sense, right thinking, right priorities, very basic. To come alongside of young women and teach them the common stuff of life. This normal process of knowing your priorities, thinking right, making sound judgment, applying theology to the extremities of life. That's the third mark. Let's go to the fourth trait, verse 5. Paul says, pure. Teach the young woman to be pure. The Greek word is hagnos. It means, in the Greek, you know what it means in the Greek? It means pure, right? It means chaste. It means ancient in the Greek and English. Chaste, morally pure, virtuous. In this context, maybe leading towards sexually faithful to their husbands. As husbands, as elders are called to be one woman, one woman man. Likewise, wives are to be one man wives. One man, woman, that they're devoted in their heart to their husband. They have a singular love, and that's directed towards God's chosen partner for their life. Morally pure. Let's move on. I'm going to spend more time on a few others. The fifth one is working at home, verse 5. We spent a lot of time on this last week. The emphasis here is not being at home. The emphasis, not the goal, goal of the Christian wife, is to stay at home. In the first century Roman Empire, women didn't have careers outside the home. They didn't have really uh, vocational opportunities in the in the workplace. They weren't really lawyers and, and doctors and engineers and architects. Most wives, they stayed home. What Paul is encouraging, what Paul is exhorting is diligence at home, working at home. As opposed to first Timothy five, so many widows who are home but who were lazy. Their children were grown up and gone, and they were just given to gossip, being busybodies, going from house to house. In a sense, being lazy. Paul is calling women. The emphasis is not in, not in being at home, but the emphasis is working, being diligent. Proverbs, Proverbs 14, one kind of woman. "The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish one, with her own hands, tears it down. Let's move on to the sixth one. We'll spend some time on this. She is to be kind. Verse 5, she should be kind. Now, here's where the translation is kind of fuzzy. The English Standard Version, which I use, says kind. New American Standard Version says kind. New International Version says kind. Only the King James Version says good. The Greek word is agathos. And I believe the right translation is good. Not so much kind. I mean, there, there is definite overlap. But Paul is saying, she's to be good, a worker, a doer of good deeds. Right. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9 and we'll look at a disciple named Tabitha. Acts chapter 9, verse 36, in a city called Joppa. It says... There was a woman, there was a disciple named Tabitha, who was always doing good. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died, and when they washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since little was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. Look at that sentence. All the widows stood beside him, weeping. And they were showing him her good works. These are the things she did. Showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas, Tabitha, made while she was with them. She was good. She was a good woman. What did she do? With her time, with her energy, with her resources, she made tunics. She made garments, clothing for widows. She was diligent. She was busy and doing good works. Now, isn't that awesome? Go to First Timothy 5. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, talking about certain widows, in verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. And the word honor, their tima, not just means attitudinal respect, but it means financial support. The church is to come alongside widows who have been, um, who, are, who are honorable, and one distinguishing mark. Of a widow worthy of this honor is down in verse 10. Having a reputation for what? Good works. That qualifies a widow to be honored by the church. And then Paul goes on to define good works. What are the good deeds that should adorn a Titus to woman? Number one, she brought up children. She raised children. It means to nourish children. Raising them in a godly way. The church is to recognize that bringing up children is a difficult work and noble work. That it is a good work. Not like the feminists who say it's obsolete. That it's oppressive. That is to avoid avoided. The church, in contrast, when they see a woman devoted to raising her ch- children or child, we are to honor them, respect them, because they're doing a noble work. It's a virtuous task. When they do it wholeheartedly, when they do it uh, with all their heart and, and life, it reflects genuine godliness. First, good work. Second, she has been hospitable to strangers hospitable to strangers. She must, have, she must have shown sacrificial devotion to the needs of the people. Right? Her home is wide open to guests, to fellow believers, to strangers. And she comes and she lavishes them with food. She lavishes them with graciousness, meeting any need that she sees. That's a good work of a woman. Right? You know, she we be taught from uh, Matthew last week, 26, about Mary and how she sacrificed her, her perfume and she lavished it upon Christ? It was sacrificial, it was abundant, it was impulsive. And she recalled us to worship Christ in that way? Well, what did Christ say? Christ says, Whatsoever you do to the least of my brethren, you're doing them unto me. So whatever we do to fellow Christians, we're doing to Christ. So if we come to church and we worship God and sing and read the Bible and we, do all, we get all energized and heated heat up and we go home and our homes are closed to fellow believers, saints come in need and we don't meet their need, we're not worshiping Christ. We're not loving Christ. A good work of a godly woman is she's hospitable. She's a lover of strangers. Third, she washed the feet of the saints. That's awesome. She's not out there to make a name for herself. She's not out there to to please herself, to gain attention from the world or from men. She's not out there to you know just buying things and and, and possessing things. What is she doing? She's washing the feet of fellow believers. It's a figurative sense, meaning she humbly served and ministered to other Christians. Go on to the next one. She helped those in trouble. In times of special difficulty, where a baby's born and mom's struggling with the responsibilities at home, a child is ill, family is ill, or they have a special need, or she has, he or she has a special need, she's there. She's not so caught up with her life that she has no time for the saints. No. She is there to help in difficult situations, to serve in every way possible. She assisted assisted them, and then finally, devoted to every good work. Describes a woman who has been energetic and diligent in her pursuit of good deeds. Personally, I see such truth here. And I believe this is the pivotal need in the church. This is the pivotal need. I think for now at Cornerstone, we have enough teachers. We have three worship leaders rotating. That's enough. You know? We have enough people doing the upfront work. I think we need godly men and women, but particularly women, who are excelling in good works, and good deeds in the church, meeting needs in the life of the body. Women are called to fill the important gaps of service needed in the church, and thereby they can be called good, having a characteristic of being good. The final one is submissive to their own husbands. Verse 5. Submissive to their own husbands. You know, six times, six passages in the New Testament that teach that wives are to submit to their husbands. Six times. I don't know why there's so much controversy. I don't know why there's so much disagreement and debate. First Corinthians 11.3, I want you to realize the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your husbands as the Lord. Ephesians 5.33, Each of you, Must respect her husband. Colossians 3.18 Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 1 Peter 3.1 Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. Even if they are non-Christians, wives, you are to submit to them. Now, Ephesians 5.21 does say, Submit to one another in the fear of God. So feminists assume, they interpret that this teaching means absolute equality. And the husband and wife, they are to submit to one another. Mutual submission. Well, that cannot be. That goes against the whole chapter of Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, 1-4. Fathers and children. As Paul is saying, children submit to your fathers. And fathers, submit to your children. Right? Obey them. Submit to them. Is he saying that? Is he saying slaves and masters? Slaves submit to your masters, but masters also need to submit to your slaves. Is he saying that to Jesus Christ and the church? Mutual submission? Church submits to Christ and Christ, he needs to submit to the church. Mutual submission. No, not at all. What is Paul saying in Ephesians 5.21? He's saying that we are to submit ourselves to one another when the circumstances call for it. So if you're a child, you need to submit to your parents. If you're a wife, you need to submit to your husband. If you're a part of the church, you must submit to Christ. If you're a member of the church, if you, Hebrews 13, you must submit to the elders. When it calls for in the Scriptures, that is submission as taught in Ephesians 5.21. No matter what our position is in this life, We all must submit and ultimately to Christ. What a beautiful woman Titus II woman is. The sight of God and the sight of man. What a precious gift she is to the church, to this world, and to her family. You know, let me read to you what Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote about his wife after her death. He wrote, she delights in her husband, in his person, his character, his affection. To her, he is not only the chief and foremost of mankind, but in her eyes, he is all in all. Her heart's love belongs to him and to him only. He, hit, he is her little world, her paradise, her choice treasure. She is glad to sink her individuality in him. She seeks no renown for herself. His honor is reflected upon her and she rejoices in it. She will defend his name with her dying breath. Safe enough is he where she can speak for him. His smiling gratitude is all the reward she seeks. Even in her dress she thinks of him and considers nothing beautiful which is distasteful to him. She has many objects in life, some of which she does not quite understand, but she believes them all, and anything she can do to promote them, she delights to perform. Such a wife, as a true spouse, realizes the model marriage relationship and sets forth what our oneness with the Lord ought to be. End quote. What is the end purpose of all of this? Verse 5 that the Word of God may not be reviled. The Word of God may not be reviled. In the world, feminists, women, men alike, who are influenced by this movement, and who have a low view of God's Word, low view of the church, and low view of other men, will look at your life, will look at your love for God, your husband, love for your children, will see your wisdom, your purity, your diligence at home, your goodness, and even your submissiveness to your husband, and it will change their view of God's Word. Isn't that awesome? Your life will change their view. They will see by your life that yes, God's Word does not oppress women. That's wrong. Look at this woman. She loves God, loves God's Word. She's not oppressed. She's not enslaved. She's not dominated. I see a woman full of joy, full of life, full of something that I don't have. I see a woman who is protected, strengthened, and enriched by the Word of God and by God's Church. It will cause her heart to so- soften to the gospel. Whereupon, on the day the Lord visits her, she might be saved. And just final thoughts to just various groups at our church. This to the older women, as we close our study and older women, younger women, let me just impress upon you that if you are an older woman, the answer is not to hide behind your husband. It's not to hide behind your children. It is not to hide behind women who are older than you. All, right? All of us. I know it's easier when we're with older people because we don't have to be the example. We don't have to be the model. We can just be ourselves. But the answer is not to hide behind older people. The answer is, if you are an older woman, it is to trust in God's sovereignty that He has brought you to a family of believers where you are one of the older women, where some younger women look up to you. And you are to trust in the sufficiency of God's Word that God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. And it is God's call upon you to roll up your sleeves and start living a life that reflects model Christianity. That, that, that highlights these seven characteristics of Titus chapter 2. The responsibility is upon you. Because future younger women, their future is at stake. I appeal to you to be available to younger women. Yes, you're busy. But sense the urgency to invest in young women. And yeah, we had a young girl come to our home this week. I think my wife, our, our running joke at our home is, and I tossed her in swearing, full-time ministry is hard, isn't it? <laughs> because I'm in three-quarter type ministry. She's in full-time ministry. We have more women over this week than I've had. I met with men this whole week. And one girl was saying to my wife, you know, I didn't want to email you. I didn't want to call you because you seem so busy and I didn't want to bother you. And my wife was like, no way. Right? I mean, I am busy but I'm busy with ministering to younger women. That's the urgency that God has given to older women to to set aside just um, peripheral hobbies, peripheral interests because it's imperative to train and teach younger women. Finally, to to older women, discipleship implies vulnerability. Um... Trust in God. Trust in God's Word to open up your life. You know, to see, you know, certain, and I, we've got strengths, we've got weaknesses, we've got huge weaknesses. Right? All the women have faith in God, that God will work through even your weaknesses. Where you're transparent. Where you allow younger women to have a close-up view of God's grace operating in your life. I know it may not be easy, it might be risky for you, it might be intimidating, but that's essential. If you want to teach and train, you can't do it from a distance. You can't do it through email. You can't do it through phone calls. It's got to be done up close and personal. Open up your lives. Open up your homes. Let them see the difficult days that right, you might have with your family and children. God uses that. Train younger women. Younger women, the Word of God is at stake. The world is looking at you. The world is. Your devotion to your family is a testimony to the power of God's Word. When non-believing moms see your devotion to your husband, to your jo- children. When non-believing friends, co-workers see your goodness, kindness, purity, diligence at home. When non-believing husbands and wives see your submissive attitude towards your husband, this will elevate their view of God's Word. Not only will it save you from the consequences of sin in the Garden of Eden, it will also be used by God to impact this world and finally, to the men. Do you know why feminism has this influence in the world? It's because of us. Because we're such flags. Because we've dropped the ball again and again and again. When we're extending our adolescence, the passivity and selfishness of husbands, foolishness and faithfulness for us to model Christian love, Christian devotion and obedience, Is the reason for the modern feminist movement. The reason they want to be independent is because they can't trust us. And the accusation fits. They can't. We've dropped the ball. If men, if Christian men took the word of God seriously if the men were truly godly, faithful, diligent, mature, if men, Christian men, grew up and stopped playing games like kids, I believe women will follow gladly. They have very little problems submitting to men like that. The onus is on us. The ball is on our court. If we step up and fulfill Then it will strengthen our families and strengthen our church. Let's pray. God, I want to just speak for all the men here and confess to you that we have been faithless. I want to confess our sins, our shortcomings. We have not earned the trust of women in our family, in our church, in our society. God, Lord, that You would forgive us. Lord, You would allow our wives to forgive us. Lord, You would grant women a more well sense of forgiveness. Lord, name the rise of this mindset that will be abused. Lord, I know hearts, deep passion, serious, loving men after your heart. Lord, we thank you for the women. We thank you for our passion precious gifts you've given to us. We pray that we grant them grace and enlarge their hearts to guard the path of your commands. You will make their paths form and sway. You will allow them to shine as godly women your word.